All right, let's do this. We're going live in five, four, three. to the Intrepid Incubator. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Very much looking forward to this morning's conversation. Promises to be very, very interesting. I'm joined by David Moeller. He's the CEO of CodeGuard. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. Glad to be here. Well, it's glad to have you. Thanks for carving out some valuable time to join me. I appreciate you braving the Atlanta traffic to get here. We had a little <laughs> talk about that pre-show. David, before we get into our very important conversation, we're going to talk about your organization, Code Guard, and talk a bit about the uh, Atlanta startup scene. Uh, do take a few quick seconds. Inform the audience a bit about you and your background. Sure. So I originally studied mechanical engineering at Georgia Tech back in the day, graduated in 2002, left and started working at GE. I did their sales training program, and then I did roles in sourcing and operations. I was in uh, Chicago, and then I was in China and Dallas. I then went to business school at Harvard and thought I wanted to go into a path in, in finance, but after having an entrepreneurial experience with a, a friend who's now a professor at Georgia Tech, we were on a precursor to Shark Tank. It was more of American Idol version of Shark Tank than the current iteration. It was called American Inventor. It was a TV show we tried out with a couple thousand people in New York City. We got selected as the one finals from New York. So half of the summer, in between my first and second year of business school, my friend and I were out in Los Angeles for a month being filmed competing for a million-dollar prize. So we had $50,000 to work on this invention we had. It's a bicycle rack. So long story short, end of the summer, I had investment banking and then this really entrepreneurial TV show thing and, and decided I wanted to do startups and entrepreneurial things, even if I made no money at all, that it was so much more fun to be able to kind of choose, choose my own destiny and make a, lot of, make a lot of mistakes, but be accountable for them. So pursued that upon graduation from business school, joined a small ACT test prep company. We grew it, led to an acquisition. I didn't want to stay in, in the test preparation space wanted to do something more internet related. So came to Atlanta. My friend who had started the the claw bike hanging business with when I was on the show with, who I said is a professor at Georgia Tech, introduced me to a professor in computer science. And that's sort of where CodeGuard started was I thought there was something to this idea of protecting websites. The website that I had built for the bicycle business, I had been working with a contractor and essentially uh, my laptop had died. I didn't have the code for a version, a prior version of it, and so it was a little bit of a mess. And so when I met this professor at Georgia Tech, the idea, the, the sort of the problem statement for CodeGuard really resonated with me. And fast forward now, that was five years ago, and now uh, running CodeGuard, we're a successful a startup business. We've raised about $2 million from angels and venture capitalists are cash flow positive and, and growing and have over 50,000 customers and back up and protect a lot of websites, over 250,000 websites and databases so that if things go wrong, people just like me will be able to uh, be protected and almost protected from themselves as well as hackers and other threats. So that's yeah. a little bit of my, my background. Yeah, well, go a little deeper on CodeGuard. Uh, go a little, uh, tell us a little bit more detail about the service offering. Uh, you guys kind of like to say that it's like having access to a time machine. Absolutely. So the 
closest analogy that we like to use, there's a couple analogies. One is a time machine for your website. So time machine is some software that Apple offers for their Mac operating system. And that's what we try to provide for any website owner. If something goes wrong, they can go back in time to a prior point. You know, if we look just at the security side of things, there will always be zero-day vulnerabilities. Zero days is a fancy word for a fancy way of saying a new thing that no one's discovered. So there's always going to be a new way to break into something, a new way to hack, a new way to get in the, a back door. And when that happens, a good portion of the time, depending on the type of attack or security vulnerability, the best way to defend yourself is just to change. If, if any changes are made to, you, let's say, your code, just go back to what you had yesterday. Or if that attack happened yesterday, unfortunately, and you don't know about it for a week or so, you got to go back until that point prior to, to when the attack occurred. So that's kind of the security side. There's also just the human error side. And the human error side is a little bit harder to really estimate. You know, If you do a survey and ask people, how many times in the last year did you mess something up? There's a lot of human bias where we're, we're going to most people, most people will drastically underestimate how much they've screwed things up on their own <laughs> or how much it's, it's human error that's responsible for something. So it's really hard for us to categorize that. What we do know is that a lot of people who sign up for our service will sign up essentially under the guise of, oh, it'll help me with hacking. And then, you know, as we see restores being requested and we ask for input on why the restore is being requested. There's a lot of files that are deleted, or a lot of errors, and so you know, initially it may be that, that it's presented to a manager as a need for external protection and hackers or malevolent employees who will leave or you know, a, a sour developer relationship where someone has control over your code and you not really having access to it. But we see that there's a lot of human error that we're able to protect from. So, you know, the whole time machine analogy really is something goes wrong, whether it's human error, whether it's employee that's defaced your website, whether it's, you know, the Syrian electronic army that's run an automated script and you're using, you know, a plugin that's outdated and therefore they're able to get in. We're able to take you back to that time before that happened to get you everything good again. So, you know, you're not blacklisted on, on Google, you don't have malware on your site, and there's, you know, all sorts of things that these miscreants can do with your with your web assets. Well, got 50,000 customers, David, I mean, that's an impressive number. Obviously, plenty of people see value in what you do, but there's still, I think, far too many people and far too many organizations that don't take this seriously. And they say, oh, this will never happen to me. Now, I hope stories like Sony will begin to make up some minds. That, but speak now to that to that organization or that individual who's just not taking it. Maybe they've downloaded some backup plugin because they'd say, all right, pat myself on the back. I've solved this problem. Probably haven't or don't have as secure a solution as they should. Talk to that person who's not taking this seriously. Why should they be doing so? So that's a, a really valid identification that there are people who are going to just sort of live in this paradigm that it's not going to happen to me. It hasn't happened yet. It won't happen to me. And, you know, I was having a conversation yesterday about this. We work with a number of managed service providers, and these are individuals who will manage IT infrastructure, almost all of the, the IT side for small, medium businesses, let's say, from 10 to 100 employees. And what's really interesting about these managed service providers is because they work with, let's call it, 50 to 100 of these businesses, they won't necessarily see every single one of their customers or clients get hacked or have a problem or have a data loss, but they'll see it in enough of them that they can share the story with the others to say, hey, you need to have this, you know, let's call it website insurance, you need to have this, you need to back up your data. I mean, something as basic as backing up your hard drive, and we can just start kind of with that. You know, how many companies aren't even backing up the hard drives of their employees' computers or backing up, whether it's locally or to the cloud? Now, 
almost anyone would acknowledge that's a best practice. We are a newer service, so part of our challenge is really educating to let businesses know we exist. Because a lot of businesses don't even know that a service like ours exists that's as easy to use. They think that, well, maybe a hosting provider is doing that. I hope they're doing that. And then you look in the terms of service and you find the hosting providers actually don't guarantee that. And that's one reason why hosting providers like to partner with us to offer us to their to their clients. So I think you know, to the to the individual or the business that says, I don't think it's going to happen to me. Unfortunately, the the reality that we're seeing with the breadth of customers and with the number of websites we look at is it's just a matter of time. And when it does happen, unfortunately, there's a lot of pain associated. We did a survey recently, and we're really astonished by a couple of the results, but one of the responses specifically. What business owners said, and these are WordPress bloggers and and developers who work with WordPress websites. We asked them, how much are you willing to pay to do a restore? Assuming you, you had the data you need to do a restore if something goes wrong with your website. And over 50% of the respondents said over $1,000. And and that was sort of over 50%. And half of that 50% bucket said they would pay almost anything. So you have this really interesting dynamic where people want to believe it's not going to happen to them. But then if it does, they are willing to pay almost anything because, you know, there's a lot that's going on psychologically when you, whether it's a defacement or your site's been hacked or you've been attacked or your site's down. And I think there's something to whether you're the one responsible in the business for that web asset or you're, you know, you're an executive and you're concerned about the perception with your customers or, or much more simply, you're losing revenue because your website's down, your e-commerce site. So any of those scenarios, what's really interesting is the dynamic of hoping it's not going to happen to you, but then when it does, you're willing to pay almost anything. So, you know, the way that we look at it is we're really trying to educate as many business owners as possible that a service like ours exists, whether it's ours that you use or some other system, that's fine. You know, unfortunately, most, most businesses aren't doing anything and part of it is doing a manual backup is just becomes kind of, you know, it, it's not something that's really exciting. You could try to set up your own script, but really maintaining it to make sure that it's working consistently, it sort of becomes something you forget about after setting it up. And then you hope, well, I hope that thing works. I mean, we kind of view it like backup generation systems for data centers. And if you're not regularly testing it, I mean, you know, the, the notion of a backup system failing is mind-blowing. But it happens. It happens for these data centers where you say, how could a data center go down? They have triple redundancy. You've got battery system. You've got this diesel generator. You have all these things. How could that ever go down? Well, if they're not regularly testing it and you just put it off in the corner, if you're not monitoring. So that's part of our services where we're checking every day to make sure any, everything we're promising is happening. So we have, you know, three external systems on top of our actual system that does all of our backups to make sure they're being done properly. We monitor so we can guarantee 99.99% levels of reliability. So if someone has a WordPress plugin, hey, that's great. You installed this plugin. How do you know it's actually working? How do you know those repositories are valid? How do you know they're not corrupt? You know, you kind of, it's not a binary thing where, you know, either, you know, we either have a, a bottle of water we can drink from or not. It's, it's much, there's much more gradation to that. It's, it's not just binary. Does it work? Do you have it? Yes, no. You, it's it's much deeper where you've got to really look and say like, is the, okay, I've got a bottle from it, but there's any water left in it. It's not just as simple as is there a bottle. You have to check it, and that's part of what CodeGuard is doing. Is we're not just saying, hey, we're going to put this bottle of water from you in front of you. We're checking to make sure you constantly have okay. Now, and what level of water is acceptable inside it? So, you know, I think part of the challenge of what we're doing is that it seems very simple. It seems very simple to a lot of uh, IT and technology, IT specialist technologists that you know the idea of oh, it just works, but it's much more complicated to actually guarantee the whole thing. And part of us backing up these sites in the cloud is we can look 
at the whole chain of things and guarantee, as opposed to us giving you some software you're going to run yourself. If I give you some software you're going to run on your laptop, I, at some point, you can do things to cause that software to fail. And I'll say, well, it's your responsibility. That's not what we do at CodeGuard. We say, we're going to take full responsibility. And if we can't connect to your site, if your credentials change, if your hosting provider server's down, we're going to let you know. We're going to be very transparent with the whole thing. And that's very different than other services that are out there. So I think, you know, ultimately, to, to the first question, I think the paradigm that's not going to happen to me is, is an unfortunate one. <laughs> I mean, if, if the biggest companies in the world, if the Sonys can have a very targeted attack... It's, it's almost unfortunately foolish for anyone, and I've heard, you know, so there's different types of attacks, too. I think it's important to kind of break them out. You know, we're not, we're not working with the Sonys to protect them from, from Chinese hackers or these nation states. We're working with small, medium businesses to help protect, let's call it, you know, their WordPress site or Joomla site or Drupal site from more automated t attacks or broad attacks. There's, there's this very advanced, you know, called spear phishing type attack where you have very skilled hackers who are going to try to steal credit card data and they're going to try to steal you know government secrets as well as intellectual property that they can use that's almost a different level but the thing that's that's important for the small mean business owner to understand is they still have something that's very valuable to these miscreants and what's valuable is this ip address that's connected to the web they have visitors they have traffic that can download malware they have a platform that can be used to attack other websites to do a distributed denial of service attack. So they have this very valuable web asset that still that still is is pursued by these different cyber criminals. It's just in a different way. They're not gonna, you know, if you've got if you're a law firm and you're just you just have some branding information about your law firm. Obviously, you don't have sensitive information or data that some ha that hackers could use, but they could still use your website to distribute malware that's going to ultimately install a keylogger on your customers computers and then it's going to steal potentially their banking information so there's still a lot of value and i think that's probably the key piece to understanding why a small and medium business owner should should do something is that even their little you know they'll, they'll call it their little website that they don't think can be used by attackers or hackers it absolutely can and so that's probably if there's one piece of information to be disseminated or there's a, a point of, of education it's really around that that even if you've got a small WordPress site and you think, hey, you know, this is just my little, this is my little site, and I'll give you an example. So Target, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the Target hack. You have a point of sale system that was attacked, and the piece that doesn't get a lot of attention is that the data that was taken from Target was transported to a hacked website. The pickup location for the millions of uh, credit card numbers and sensitive information was a hacked website. And a pretty sizable file, I think it was a couple of gigs, was sitting on on their their web server. Now we don't know where it, you know, whose web server was hacked, but Brian Krebs, Krebs and Security, kind of, you know, traced the whole thing through. And there was a hacked website that was in the middle of the whole thing. So you know, that small mean business owner says, well, this can, you know, this can never happen to me. It could. I mean, it has and it can in, in different ways, shapes, and forms. So you know, ultimately, if something hasn't happened, it could. You're lucky if it hasn't. And if it does, then you're really going to wish that you'd done something because at that point when something has happened, it's too late. It's sort of like, let's say we get in a car accident and we don't have car insurance. It's, it's unfortunately too late to sign up at that point. Now, one second before the accident, you can sign up and you're covered. But after it, it's too late. And the same thing is true for a backup. Yeah. Well, two quick comments before we go to break. I think it's a cost of doing business now. I think you have to do this. If you're doing business in the 21st century, this is a this is something that you have to do, mm -hmm. in my view. I know you probably agree, but you just have to. And two, the, the beauty is if you try to do it yourself, 
I don't, you don't know what you don't know what you don't know, and 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 the technology is advancing so fast, and and the miscreants, as you as you describe them, they're learning too, and mm-hmm. they're getting more innovative and mm-hmm. more creative, and so, uh, to me, having a solution such as yours, uh, which has my back. I'm counting on you to keep up with all the changes and to be continually evolving and changing. So, all right. David Moeller will return after this quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the new international best-selling book, Leadership Rigor. This groundbreaking book will turn everything you think you know about leadership upside down. Leadership Rigor explores how to achieve breakthrough performance and productivity through leading yourself, leading teams, and leading at the organizational level. Author Erica Piedler outlines for her readers how to become change-ready leaders. Change-ready leaders are capable of embracing challenges with agility and optimism because they have the tools, models, and language to assess, structure, and facilitate solutions. Leadership is a skill that can be learned and practiced. Take the rigor challenge and ask yourself, do you want to lead mindfully and skillfully? Or do you want to subject your teams and organizations to your unstructured thoughts and approaches? The choice is yours. Will you rigor it? You can purchase Leadership Rigor on Amazon or by visiting ericpetler.com. All right, we're back with David Moeller, the CEO of CodeGuard. So, David, really important conversation, top half of the show. I appreciate the good work that you do, and you and I may have to have an offline chat because I have a very, very important media company. That's my baby, and I want to be sure that that I'm doing everything I can there. Let's shift our conversation a bit. A couple of interesting topics that would be fun to talk with you about. This idea of of running a startup, there's a lot of glamour associated with it. A lot of people think it's a real sexy business. So what's it really like on the inside? What's your take there so that's a that's a, a great question and you know i think that whether it's the silicon valley show and hbo or different tech blogs or just you know the exciting part about technology startups to the general public when you're not in it is there's a funding announcement there's a you know let's say an ipo or acquisition announcement there's these big announcements but it's harder to really appreciate a product announcement you know what's that really mean how tough was that to to produce so you kind of have a lot of focus around these media garnering events, the fundraising, the IPO, the acquisition. And it's and it's unfortunate that those are really the things that get all the attention and the hard work of building the product, which is really not sexy at all, doesn't get much uh, attention at all. So I, I think that, you know, ultimately that that the way that uh, as far as what's exciting to, to read about you know, it's just there's a lot of hard work in the behind the scenes that doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, you get attention, let's say, around a demo day for a different accelerator, whether it's a Flashpoint or a Y Combinator or Techstars. But then there's this period of time where after you've raised your initial funding, let's say you go that path of your bootstrapping, where things are pretty quiet. And Paul Graham of Y Combinator talks about it and he says, you know, it's the, I think it's like the the, the doldrums and kind of this this product development zone of despair where you're working really, really hard and maybe you've got a number of customers or a handful of customers and the product's not working quite right. And that's the really, really challenging period. So I think that, you know, the, a part of startups that doesn't get a lot of press or exposure is the really tough part. And I think that's the part that really does separate the companies that make it from those that don't is just not giving up. And, you know, I think that ultimately there's, there's not really a magic formula, but I guess from where 
you know, I sit in the experiences that we've gone through at CodeGuard, I think it's important for other entrepreneurs to prepare themselves mentally for it. I was talking with an entrepreneur the other day, and he was debating launching a new service that I think could be really valuable, and we would actually use it at CodeGuard. And part of our discussion, I said, you know, if you're going to go sailing and you set out on a sunny day and you think you're just going to be enjoying and just laying back all day and a storm comes up on you, you're, you're in for a world of hurt. You're probably not ready for it, in, you know, not, not just mentally, but you may not have all the right materials to, to, to adjust the sails so that you can handle this huge storm or wrap them up and be okay. But if you set out on that sunny day and say, hey, it's sunny right now, but I know, very, I know with 100% certainty we are going to have a storm that's coming up, and I'm going to have to deal with that. And I got into the water today knowing that it was going to be rough. Now that to me is a different animal. You're mentally prepared. You're probably have prepared different materials, or you know, you're just going to approach the whole thing differently. So to me, I think that's the most important message that gets out to to those who want to either join startups or or want to be an entrepreneur. And you know, I, I think it's really important for to calibrate expectations. And you hear people talk about how hard it is. And, you know, maybe I'm just another voice that's kind of saying how hard it is. But I think it's very, very, very important to contrast sort of the glamour of, you know, these big announcements of the fundraise and the, you know, acquisition or IPO and these things with that sustained period of really hard work. And so if there's one thing that I could, that I could you know, put out there for anyone who wants to, to do their own thing is to be ready for that and just to be ready for the sustained effort. And to not get in unless they're really ready for that. So I guess. Well, I think the majority of startup founders, they're not going to be bought by Facebook for billions. That's right. They're they're not going to be this world changing thing like Uber. I mean, they're just most of them are not going to be that way. They're not they're not not thinking about profits and, and earning a living. But but what I think drives most most people such as yourself is the fact of of I think some of them thrive on that work. Because the act of building something and testing something and making it better mm -hmm. and learning and continuing to make it better is what really, really drives most startup founders. And in my view, what, what, a, what a startup entrepreneur is doing is solving a problem. And they get great joy at helping people solve those problems. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. I think the journey and enjoying the journey, because it can't be about the Ubers, it can't be about the Facebooks, it can't be about these billion dollar valued unicorn things. Because I, I think that, frankly, I think that distorts things. If you think that everything should fit into that, if every round peg has to be a fit in the square hole of a billion dollar startup, well, I mean, there's a lot of companies that aren't going to be started. Not every company needs to be a billion dollar startup. I mean, there's a lot of companies that are meeting needs in a, in a particular niche that are never going to have a valuation like that. Does that mean that everyone should abandon those dreams? Unfortunately, there are some in Silicon Valley who'd say, yes, you should stop working on a thing if it doesn't have the potential to be this trillion dollar exit. Well, I think that's foolish. I think there are a number of companies that are driving value. And I completely agree. I think the startups that, that do it and maintain focus and don't get distracted, you're trying to solve a particular problem and you enjoy solving it. And that's the journey. And something we talk about internally with our team is like, hey, I can't promise that that we're going to get to this incredible exit. I can't can't make any promises there. Do I think we're going to get there? Are we doing all the right things? Sure. What can I promise? That we're going to have a great time on this journey. We're going to try to develop ourselves. We're going to try to have a great environment to work in. And we're going to try, you know, let's call it three to five years down the road, and this is promises I made a while back, that three to five years down the road, you're going to look at this and say this is a great experience, and I learned a lot, and I gained a lot, and this is going to help me in my next steps. 
And I think that's important. I think, you know, in the late 90s, a lot of things were you know, obviously completely different, but a lot of promises that are made to employees where it's just financially driven, I think that that's not the right approach because you can't guarantee that. You absolutely can't guarantee it. Tomorrow, the conditions can change. I mean, we're in a pretty good market environment right now. Things can change drastically tomorrow. Um, and the only thing you can really deliver on is that experience. And so I think that that's of the utmost importance is, is, is you know, Calibrating the expectations for so that. So why are you based in Atlanta? Why did you? Why are you uh, launching your startup here? Why not Silicon Valley? Why not San Francisco? Why not New York? You've had some success there. Talk about why this is such a, a great place to do this. Yeah, so I think that the South does a poor job of really bragging on itself. Of uh, I think I think people in the South are pretty humble, and I think there's pros and cons to it. I think in a lot of ways that that's a better approach. I think at CodeGuard we don't really. We don't toot our own horns that much. We believe that the product should should do the talking and that people can try it and, and hopefully they'll like it. And we have a net promoter score that's very high and we think that reflects it. But, you know, as I look at the New Yorks and, and companies in the Valley, it's a little bit of, there's a different mentality where they're, you know, I'd say that the degree of showmanship and flash is much higher. Now, is there substance behind some of these, you know, much more flashier things? Yeah, absolutely. There's some substance, but you don't know which door you're going to open that has the real substance and which which one which one doesn't. I think in the south there's a there's a great deal more of substance, but we just don't promote ourselves as much. I think Atlanta is a great place. So one one I think the people are very different. And that's not just, you know, let's call it the executives or those who are trying to found companies, but the engineers who are going to work. I think you have a degree of loyalty that's much higher. I think you have the quality of, of person who who's willing to join a startup or a company where they're going to get a great experience. I think that there's a, a greater willingness there. Uh, at Georgia Tech, we've got a great engineering school. There are other great schools in Atlanta and the South that provide engineering talent. I think there's a work ethic on the East Coast that is, you know, not to, to say to diminish the West Coast, but I think that really operating, once you get to the operational level, meaning you're not trying to get capital in, in early stages or you have sources of capital lined up, that you can really operate a business where you can have some rhythm and rigor that's a, that's a little bit different to the West Coast. I mean, I think that that's a good just point. In, in general that in the East Coast, we have a, just a different kind of mentality. And then with the Atlanta airport, you can get anywhere you need. Mm. I mean... Multiple times I've been out to California and back, you know, in a 24-hour period where went out in the morning, came back on the red eye, great. You know, Atlanta, you know, no no layovers. Atlanta makes it, Atlanta Airport, Hartsville makes it, Hartsville Jackson makes it very easy to get almost anywhere you need. So, you know, if you're going to drive from San Francisco down to Palo Alto and Grand Yard Drive is, what, a half hour, depending on what is in traffic, okay, that's, you know... Yeah, that's that's that would be preferred, but it's not as if it's a three day trip for us to get there from Atlanta. You know, it's it's very easy to access almost anywhere you need. And then let's say you are based in San Francisco and you're going to go to conferences or call customers around the U.S. Well, okay, now that great advantage of being in the valley, being close to capital sources and let's call it thought leaders, I think starts to diminish as the stage increases. Now there are some advantages. If, if a company that's going to buy you is out there and there's relationships and things. But I think that the farther you get from that early seed round, the greater the benefits of, of an Atlanta or the South. Yeah, really I hadn't really you. thought of it that way before. That's, a, that's an intriguing way to look at it. Very interesting. Well, there's an increasing access to capital here, too, though. I think that's a, a moving in the right direction. I think it's moving in the right direction. I don't think we'll ever be close, unfortunately, to the Valley. And the oh, reason, probably not. But... And the reason me, being that in the Valley – 
we have these we do have the unicorns and when the unicorn billion dollar ubers and these others a lot of people make a lot of money and then you have a lot of people who are willing to be angels you know atlanta cocard raised money from MLA investments and sig mosley and you know we're, we have just extreme gratitude structurally in the valley they're just set up so there can be more sig mosley's and, and more john MLA's because you have these big unicorns or the facebook's and twitter's where a lot of people kind of the wealth gets spread around and i think that that's okay i think that's more than fine because those sources of capital are willing to come to atlanta mm -hmm. they're willing to find the diamonds in the rough they're willing to find the companies that are off the beaten path they're absolutely willing to come here so if, if the startup entrepreneurs open their minds and say hey let's go out to the valley pursue capital and say you know we, we're more than open to your capital, but we'd like to try to run the thing in Atlanta. I, I, I personally am in favor of that model. I think it's a great model. I think it leverages Georgia Tech. I think it leverage, uh, leverages a number of strengths we have in Atlanta in the South. And I think it's a model that's sustainable, sustain, that is sustainable, and it doesn't force anything to really change. You know, it doesn't force all of a sudden Atlanta to need, you know, 100 more millionaires that can, yeah. that can fund these things. It's a model that, that uh, allows us, if we can just dial up the perception piece a little bit. I think that's where it's important. That's where thing like, things like Venture Atlanta are very helpful. More when TechCrunch comes to town to show that, you know, we have a strong presence here and that there are a lot of great companies. Mm, that's a good point. Good point. Well, in 15, 20 years when there's a lot more David Muller's around, uh, that, that scene may change. Um, so running low on time, David, but I'm intrigued to ask you this question. Uh, if I read correctly, you have an MBA from Harvard, yes? Mm-hmm. A lot of people out there saying that these business degrees aren't really viable, don't really teach you what you really need to know to be a successful tech startup. I'm, and you know, and I think back on my college education, and I had a great time at school, and I learned a lot, and it was a valuable experience, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. But if I had to do it over again, I don't know what I would do. I would have to really think long and hard about: is there real value to to that four-year education? So a lot of people saying the MBA is not necessarily valuable anymore. What's your opinion? Well, I think the learning that you get, the in-class learning, you know, I think there's questions about the value there. The network you can get is absolutely invaluable. Mm -hmm. So a number of partnerships we've had, connections that have been made through friends from business school have been really invaluable. So I think that's where, you know, I think the in-class piece is tough. You know, Harvard produces great general managers. So if I was to go to a big Fortune 500, I think you nailed it. In an early stage tech startup or tech startup, there's a lot you're going to get from a from an MBA that's not going to be helpful. But those connections are really invaluable because everyone I went to school with now, I mean, they're at, you know, you can name almost any tech, oh, tech yeah. startup in the valley, and you know, one off connection is is not hard to make. Well, so. it's kind of thinking. And I, I used to think I wanted to get a law degree. I had zero desire to be an attorney, mm -hmm. but I thought the process of getting the degree would have been invaluable. So interesting thought. Well, David, I hate to say it. Uh, obviously, you and I uh, have an awful lot to talk about, and there's a lot of subjects I did not get into today. So we'll probably have to have you back uh, on the show <laughs> down the road. Before I do let you go, however, where can people go to contact you should they have questions? And most importantly, where can they learn more about CodeGuard? People can contact me at david at codeguard.com and just go to codeguard.com for more information. David Moeller, the CEO of CodeGuard. Real pleasure to have you. Thanks for stopping by Thanks. and joining me. All right. Well, that wraps this conversation. Again, on behalf of my guest, David Moeller, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on the Intrepid Incubator.